I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. Welcome to the premium side of Grubstakers. We are continuing our investigation of BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. We are safely behind the paywall. You know who we are. And because we are behind the payroll, paywall, I can say it, Roy Cohn and J. Edgar Hoover are pedophiles. <gasps> and they did traffic children, and that is part of the Epstein conspiracy. Man, Which more Epstein dirt keeps coming out, and it it won't it won't end. If it feels true, then it probably is. Because <laughs> like they give you like the tiniest kernel, and you're like, okay, well this has more questions than answers. And then you're like, like it dies down like for a week or two, and then new shit comes out that's like semi related, but then not. It's just a fucking rabbit hole of madness. He was just a, a brilliant financier who. Uh, you know, got a little out of hand, and then uh, once he went to the prison system, you know, the conditions are so bad <laughs> that uh, he uh, uh, wrapped a paper towel around his neck and, um, you know. Like, and so this Roy Cohn, J. Edgar Hoover pedophiles thing, this is actually Whitney Webb is a reporter for Mint Press, and a lot of what she says about Epstein is accurate. Uh, I, It was something where I was doing all this BCCI research, and then I saw that, and I'm like, well, I don't have time to investigate <laughs> this shit. Yeah, I think I've got enough was, rabbit holes. She was the one who did the, um, well, the Mossad connection to Epstein, um, going into the Mossad guy who left and then said right. that. Epstein was recruited by what's his name? Right. Robert Maxwell. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and that is something I wanted to talk about here because we're going to continue with the story of BCCI where you left where we left you is like right around the start of the Afghan war, all that. But what I what I wanted to start by saying is I do believe there are real conspiracies. I believe there are real things that particularly the CIA, but other levels of the federal U.S. government were involved in that they have covered up. But I also believe there are fake ones. Oh, really? You know, because I think that's, uh, there was a CIA disinformation. <laughs> there was a CIA disinformation agent, uh, and he gave this quote to Congress, I believe, and he said his job was to create a wilderness of mirrors so that whenever people uh, go off and chase and try to investigate something, they'll get to the end and realize they're just staring at a mirror, mm. you know, which theoretically points you to another mirror that you go and investigate. Right. So, um, Wait, do you mean a mirror as in like you go through a whole bunch of hurdles of shit and then when you end at it, it's pointing back at you or that you've just done a reflection of your own research? Uh, my meaning, and I'm paraphrasing that quote, but I think what he meant is that it's a mirror, but it's pointed at another mirror. Mm, so it's a, wi gotcha, it's a gotcha. wilderness okay, yeah. of mirrors. And I thought you were saying that you do like all this you shit, this. and then at the end, like a number 23 <laughs> situation, you're the reason this shit's <laughs> happening. And I was like, this is some good fucking dirt, John. That's why so many people investigating the uh, the Finders cult have killed themselves under mysterious circumstances. Because <laughs> yeah. you they get to the good. end, and you're like, I was the Finders <laughs> cult right, pedophiles. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much how the... Uh, like the new strategy for global warming by like petrol companies where oh, they're yeah. like, you know, the real culprit in global warming is you. Consumer. <laughs> yeah. Change your, change your spinning habits yeah. are coming from the inside of the house. Yeah. But the Hall of Mirrors thing, like you can definitely see it play out if you, um, if you've seen the documentary, uh, Wormwood by Errol Morris about how there was, um, this uh, guy who worked for the biological weapons uh, wing of the CIA during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, initially reported that he uh, fell or jumped out of a window. And they said that that was a uh, um, possible suicide. And then when MKUltra came out, they said, oh, no, we gave him acid. And then he jumped out a window a month later. We're so sorry. And then it eventually came out, though hasn't been officially confirmed, that yeah, he was killed because they were worried that he was going to talk about U.S. biological weapons use what? in uh, North Korea during the Korean War. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I also remember for that documentary, there was something in uh, a CIA assassination manual about like the best way to kill people is push them out of a window high up. Yeah, it because was it, it can look like a suicide. Yeah, it was exactly like it, it matched like uh, directly how he died. Where it's uh, you want to someone to fall out of a window around ten stories up. He was of course on like the eleventh floor. And also, before throwing them out a window, you want to land a blow to the temple. And when they exhumed his body and re-examined it, uh, they did find that, like, there was a trauma hit to his head that um, had, I guess, coagulate. Or it, 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 they found that it wasn't from him either hitting the ground because he didn't hit the ground on that side. And it couldn't have been from going through the window because there were no uh, glass cuts oh, on him. Yeah. yeah, but when you're really depressed and about to kill yourself, you often hit yourself in the head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before jumping out of a window to punish yeah. your brain for giving you those thoughts. And you also break the window ahead of time instead of, say, opening it. or <laughs> You break it and then yeah. hit your head and then you jump. Yeah. That's the common suicide manifesto. Uh, yeah. b- a- bef- after you take acid, that's the most of important course, part. Of course, of course. I think you take acid on the way down. <laughs> Um, but I guess with with regards it's to really this, tough with the paper because you got to really get it under the tongue and it's got to <laughs> hold it. If you drop it, it flies away. With regards to this wilderness of mirror shit, we're going to finish the BCCI story. We're going to talk a bit about what is confirmed with regards to BCCI child trafficking and uh, with regards to BCCI links to the CIA. By the way, if but, you're in New York and want to go to the hotel where the guy uh, fell or jumped, uh, it's right by Penn Station. Check it out. Mm-hmm. Um. But I guess we should at least mention, uh, and again, we're going to do this part two if uh, necessary. We'll probably have to do a part three as well just to get all this shit in here. But we will at least mention the Finders cult, the Franklin scandal, some of this other shit that uh, Whitney Webb for Mint Press has written about. I'll, I'll quote some of her articles. And so it's just like kind of the farther on you go, the more it's like we don't really know for sure. But it's it's worth talking about these things. And... It is something where, uh, you know, Steve and Andy, you did a bit of research on the Finders cult. And I looked at that shit and I was like, well, this is too perfect. (laughs) This is like a satanic pedophile CIA ring. Like they had to put that shit out there to keep us off the BCCI trail or the Epstein trail. And I don't know the truth. You know, it's just one of those things where I have no idea if this is true or not, or just a a mirror, as it were. Sean knows the truth, but he's waiting till 400 patrons show up to reveal it to all of our listeners. That would be a great fucking scam. <laughs> we we say what's, at, it, what's in the safe? Yeah, at one thousand patrons, <laughs> we, we blow will, the Epstein thing wide yes, open. At one thousand patrons, and then we all kill ourselves at nine ninety eight patrons, <laughs> <laughs> just to drive the internet insane. This is occurring into a cargo cult. <laughs> just keep waiting. Like, what happens at six hundred patrons? You don't want to know. What new What new data drop? But so uh, where we left you last time is BCCI was founded in 1972, originally in Luxembourg. And we talked a little bit about it, but we should go back to kind of the oil crunch as to how BCCI was able to grow so much where uh, Abadi, Aga Hassan Abadi, the founder, was was smart in the sense that he recognized all the petrodollars were coming into the Middle East. So if he could be the bank for particularly the UAE and to a lesser extent the Saudis, if he could be their bank of choice then he would make billions just on the commission alone. Hmm. And then the oil crunch in particular, like, raises global oil prices so much, it makes overnight billionaires. Yeah. So I think this 1973-74 oil crisis uh, brought on by OPEC as a response to, as kind of a political move to get, what was it, the U.S.? The, uh, what the was it? The U.S., the U.K., to stop supporting Israel. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Politically, I think most historians would agree that it probably didn't work. But um, in terms of causing some real sabotage and chaos economically for the 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 countries that OPEC uh, turned the spigot off to, like yeah, it was you could say it was a success. Yeah. But anyway, like the BC the BCCI uh, this this oil crisis kind of gave them more of a reason to exist because Mm. the u.s started sanctioning opec countries and these countries a few of them who they did business with and created a need for an alternative sort of payments infrastructure and by a bank that happened to have a lot of u.s dollars yeah and it 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 did like kind of restructure uh, american foreign policy where instead of just supporting israel you know america already had kind of deals with the saudis but american 
support for Saudi Arabia, like one thing they did accomplish for those in power in Saudi Arabia was it really strengthened um, America. It, it made, I guess, probably America realize how reliant they are on, you know, OPEC um, doing what they want it to and kind of strengthened America's bonds to the Saudis um, because, you know, they they know that the Saudis can uh, kind of trigger an economic crisis. Um, and at the same time, um, shit, what was I going to say? Uh, well, we were talking on the previous episode a lot about BCCI as an intermediary between countries that can't be seen doing business. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's very, uh, BCCI also helps get, say, Iranian oil to Israel through Mark Rich, even though after the uh, Ayatollah comes to power, Iran is officially sanctioned. But right. BCCI is very much an intermediary in all these transactions. And just to recap, they between 1973 and 1976... They grew from 200 million in assets to over 1.6 billion in assets. Nice. And even for like a well-connected international bank, that's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's considering they were stealing 200 percent of those deposits. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, well, part of it, uh, I mean, as we've already shown and will continue in this episode, is just illicit activity. Mm-hmm. But then I think there is a real economic impetus in from the sanctions and the oil crisis. Right. Like, that's the great thing is uh, BCCI, when it collapsed, is about $20 billion bank in 1991, which was at the time the seventh largest private bank in the world. But um, uh, we uh, don't have to tell you the black ops part of that is not part of that figure. So it's a $20 billion bank that is also probably the leading weapons dealer, um, drug trafficker, money launderer, uh, subcontractor for various intelligence agencies, and of course, you know, child trafficking. So mm-hmm. all of those businesses... The green business- countries are the countries we sell arms to. The green countries are the countries where we wash our money. <laughs> uh, yeah, run right out of the Reagan White House. <laughs> um, but I guess... Uh, To kind of continue the story uh, of BCCI, uh, uh, we mentioned Aga Hassan Abadi. He moves to Karachi after the Indian Civil War. He's originally in Lahore. Camille Lanciani's hometown. Yes, he's in Karachi. Um, And uh, Karachi's like a port city in Pakistan. And it be- Why are you looking at me when you're saying this stuff, Sean? <laughs> what, what, what you want Tell me, me if I'm wrong. Fucking, I gotta yes, be. No. I gotta be the resident Pakistan expert on this show. <laughs> I was hoping. I was Yogi hoping. He has the. Uh, he, he has the Kamal Nanjiani fact. Uh-huh. Yes. And that's it. That's it. That's yeah. all I got. He no. is that. That is the law. He's the resident Kamal Nanjiani expert. <laughs> Only on his hometown, though. Nothing yeah. else. I do like our billionaire podcast. Yogi is the guy who gives us facts about Indian comedians. <laughs> <laughs> like I was listening to that episode you guys did where Yogi disses Tom Thacker out of nowhere. Yeah. Why wouldn't I? Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck his face. I'll say not it again. Even, not even on the paywall. <laughs> on the free side. Hey, yeah. I want to I I say this about the new Dr. Doolittle. Is, uh, Camille Nanjiani, he's playing an ostrich, but he has an accent because his first language is Urdu. Does that mean that ostriches speak Urdu, <laughs> but then when they're talking to Dr. Doolittle, who doesn't speak Urdu, he has to speak English? And then and then uh, if, if he only speaks Urdu, he can't speak to a human because uh, only the one speaks... Do ostriches... Uh, so unless Robert Downey Jr. learns Urdu, yeah. he can't speak to this ostrich in his native tongue. That's what yeah. we're going to oh, yeah. it implied that he's speaking Urdu to them? But it comes out no. as English so that we understand? No. It doesn't, but Andy's Andy's bringing this fantasy to life. I'm I'm just saying he's got an accent. Like, how, if, if, if you're... Yeah, what's the ostrich accent from? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Because he's not learning English from a Pakistani <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fun BCCI fact is that the people involved in the black ops or like, you know, drug trafficking, all these other uh, illicit businesses, mm-hmm. they would all be Urdu, uh, Urdu speakers. Mm. So they'd be Pakistanis, you know, at all the different branches. And they would only some keep, of them ostriches. Yeah. They would only keep <laughs> notes of illegal transactions in Urdu and they would only Urdu. Urdu Urdu. They would only keep the notes of these transactions in Urdu and they would keep them in safes. Uh, so you would have these, you know, billions and billions of dollars of illegal money flowing right. around, and the only way of keeping track of it is these like notes in code in Urdu, or like these coded phone conversations in Urdu. Right. Uh, so you know, this is a, a monstrosity to try and uh, piece back together when it all comes down. It is funny that their strategy is like, well, not a lot of people speak Urdu, so we can just write out exactly what we're doing. <laughs> well, Basically you know, invulnerable, yeah. legally right. speaking. 
Well, when we're talking about on the free side, how they were offering uh, children and drugs, among other things, to convince them to work with one another, part of me was like, I know there's a racial aspect of we don't speak their language, but I'm sure they fuck with what we fuck with, mm-hmm. and that's cocaine and boys. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, now that we're behind the paywall, Yogi can enlighten us on how the Pakistani mind relates to the BCCI <laughs> scandal. Yeah, Yogi, off mic, you were saying something about their um, the contours of their skulls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see, a lot of people don't know this, but the partition was based purely on skull size <laughs> and caste ranking. And obviously, everyone that's not a Hindu, uh, 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 infidel of the Islamic gods, deserves to live outside the border because their skulls are just smaller. It'd be great. We get to the pay side, and Yogi's like, you know, I couldn't really say this on the free side, but the BCCI young boys thing, not really surprising because all Pakistani stand-up comedians are pedophiles. It's part of the Urdu nature. Why are you mad? I'm talking about shit about Tom Thacker. You, what, no, you, no, you, I don't care. You got, I, you got support for Tom? Huh? I, uh, I like say, Tom Brady. All we're saying is that Harvey Weinstein uh, raked in uh, Academy Awards, and we all know what he was up to. Now Kamal Nanjiani's got an Academy Award. Mm, mm. Good point. Nomination. Uh, he didn't win. He didn't win? Oh, no. That movie sucked. <laughs> Big sick. <laughs> Any of y'all see it? Not that good, no. 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 Hey, Judd Apatow, how about you make something that isn't a piece of shit again? Uh, and Kumail Nanjiani and Pete Holmes. He's listening. He's like, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> the entire crew, they keep saying the same story. Like, hey, Pete Holmes, you're going to make a show about your life in New York. How about you cast someone that's not a fucking 39-year-old to play someone doing an, you know, a 19-year-old comedian job? Hey, Kumail, you're going to tell the same story that is your your life with, with your love? That's fine. But maybe don't mm-hmm. be yourself because you're, I don't know, two decades removed from the incident <laughs> you know, that's happening in this fucking movie. In fairness, Judd Apatow is like the BCCI scandal of Hollywood mm-hmm. because right. he has been creatively insolvent for more than a decade, <laughs> and yet the powers that be are protecting him and preventing his collapse. Well, see, he was linked to uh, Gary Shandling, the Mueller of the entire uh, investigation. That made me so fucking mad, too, because I love Gary Shandling, and, and I watched that documentary. It's so much fucking Judd, Judd Apatow yeah. in his uh, tribute to his dead Gary Shandling See, friend. now we're touching on the Wait, what happened? Sean what is this? Shit the HBO two-part uh, Gary Shandling documentary. It, it has to be two parts because one of the parts is Judd Apatow. Oh, it's like, just Judd Apatow talking up. about Gary Shandling? Yeah. Uh, yeah like, it's a Apatow's uh, jerk letter to Gary Shandling. And Apatow made it, and in fairness, Apatow was a writer on the uh, Gary, Shan- uh, Gary Shandling show. Oh, you mean, in fairness, uh, Shandling gave Apatow the career he has currently? Yeah, you're not wrong about that, Sean. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, listen, I ain't that mad at, at Apatow. He's just Wait, a guy who's best. Wait, when you say gave best. him the career he has currently, did Judd Apatow kill Gary Shandling? <laughs> <laughs> the Larry no, but, Sanders show. But, yeah, Gary Shandling uh, uh, hired Apatow early on, and, like, Funny People is based on Sh- uh, Apatow's oh, relationship Shanling. with Shandling. Uh, yeah, so, like, they, there's a... Uh, tenured history. Like, oh, so uh, their their working relationship was kind of directionless and uh, <laughs> lacking <laughs> a strong overarching plot narrative. Very similar. Just kind of really bleak and uh, not a good movie at all and yeah. uh, certainly not a comedy. Anyway, <laughs> all I'm confirming is Kumail does not have an Academy Award. <laughs> I want that to be clear to all our listeners. Yogi's like, you know the Urdu word for uh, consensual sex is actually uh, means rape small children? <laughs> <laughs> I like how Sean's putting words in my mouth, and instead of just, hey, Yogi, say this, he's like, Yogi says, and then just does a whole bunch of racist shit against brown people. <laughs> oh, you know, it's really funny when Sean said the N-word 70 yeah. times. <laughs> but that's the plausible deniability aspect of white irony racism, <laughs> is you say, no, this other character yes. who's racist Precisely. said these things. The Quentin Tarantino me. of uh, yes. medium. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, uh, the, the Jeff Dunham, old Walter puppet. Yeah. You know, that was written Yogi, by Yogi, how Lennon. dare did you say that? What? Really? Yeah. Rob, like a lot of Dunham's characters were written by a couple people and a good chunk of Walter was written by Robert Ben Grant and Tom Lennon from Reno 911 in the state. Hmm. Well, I got to get a paycheck, I guess. I mean, like, you know, write racist jokes for my puppet character. That's a job you, you do. Can we get, <laughs> can we get back to phrenology? <laughs> Anyway, so these Pakistani skulls, they bitch-ass skulls. <laughs> I'm saying it here first and last. So in my in my will, just know everything goes back to me in the grave. <laughs> no one gets my shit. I really do. I, I, You know, like you say, I'm like quoting you fakely, but I'm actually trying to promote the yogi becomes an Indian nationalist transformation <laughs> arc. Because oh. I think it would be nice to observe oh, over the course <laughs> of this podcast, yogi getting <laughs> radicalized and then... <laughs> 
there's just like these it, it's like Anthony Cumia towards the end of Opie and Anthony where he would right, go right, on these right, right. these long racist rants and Opie would just be like on his phone or ignoring it you know <laughs> and so it's just Yogi's like doing these pro Modi mm-hmm. rants mm-hmm. for like 20 minutes and then there's these long pauses we have to edit out <laughs> once we start doing video you'll get to see the tapestry that's right this is just a map oh, it's yeah. a map of Kashmir uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it shows what territory is <laughs> the cutting board I have is yeah. a map of cashmere. Yeah. yeah, and it's labeled by Brain Pan. <laughs> <laughs> we like we start doing the video, and then in Yogi's room, it's just pictures of Modi everywhere. <laughs> and then there's yeah, the map map of Kashmir that has it as part of India. <laughs> and then there's uh, like lists of people being detained with the words terrorist written <laughs> next to them. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there's like an invasion plan and it's like supply lines to cut off in Pakistan. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get this, Yogi? Shut up. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of uh, pro bono freelance editing work for the Indian government I can't talk about, <laughs> but just know there's a uh, blackout in Kashmir because of me. He's been doing drops for Modi's podcast. <laughs> you go into Yogi's room and it looks like there's a framed dip- diploma on the mm-hmm, wall, mm-hmm. but it actually just says the Urdu word for consensual sex is rape of young boys. <laughs> Not sure how you even got it framed like that, Yogi. But uh, they put up a fight. But yeah. I told them to do it, or I'd kill them. <clears throat> right. Well, then wouldn't it just be the Urdu word for rape of young boys? Nope. Shut up. Nope. <laughs> those two words are interchangeable That's why in it was the Urdu language. The big sick. Guys. <laughs> That's why you don't. The, you got to read through the lines of these movies, dog. The Epstein conspiracy is the real big sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, but so Aga Hassan Abadi, um, he moves to Karachi. He's originally in Lahore. He moves to Karachi. He sets up a BCCI in Luxembourg, 72. We've mentioned here it's exploding because of the oil boom. Um, uh, remittances from, you know, Pakistani migrants workers who go to the Gulf states. He gets all these deposits. He gets the oil money. Um, so he has this, like, amazing growth, but what really takes BCCI to the next level, as well as the Pakistani... Is inter- Facebook. As well as the Pakistani intelligence service, is um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You know, Christmas Day, uh, I believe, 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what happens here is Jimmy Carter... Uh, is president originally. We boycott the Olympics. He starts a small-scale arms running to the Mujahideen, the resistance fighters, but it's really Ronald Reagan who comes in and What's says... What's the difference between a small-scale... Afghanistan scale? needs more money. <laughs> We've got 65.2 million tucked away in Zurich. What's the difference between a small-scale and a large-scale militia, or whatever you're saying? Just like... A couple pallets versus a couple... Right. Box trucks? Yeah. Dozens of pallets? Right. I don't know. It's like when when you're actually counting the palletfuls of $100 bills wh- or when you're just going like, yeah, this seems like enough. <laughs> <laughs> when you can eyeball it versus right. when you have to weigh it. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, when you start having to weigh your money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Abagnale method. But so we mentioned uh, the main source for this in the previous episode is the book The Outlaw Bank by Jonathan Beattie and S.C. Gwynn, uh, former Time Magazine correspondents. And they talk about um, uh, General Faisal Hawk, F-A-Z-L-E-H-A-Q. Um, and he was, uh, uh, w- they quote, is uh, Washington's man in Pakistan. He was a, a lieutenant general in the Pakistani military, and he just so happened to be in 1978 appointed governor of Pakistan's northwest frontier province in 1978. So if you are the general who is appointed uh, the governor of the northwest province that just happens to have an entrance into Afghanistan— well, if the CIA wants to send uh, weapons and money into Afghanistan, they have to go through you. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, Frank Lucas. Frank Abagnale is the check catch me if you can guy. Frank Lucas is the American <laughs> gangster guy mm-hmm. that knew how much a million dollars was by weight. Mm. Oh, damn. I like that movie because it glorified Frank Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. Just as like... It's like, what if we took, that movie was, what if we took Scarface, mm-hmm. but made Tony Montana even more relatable? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the message of this movie is the fucking heroin dealer is a really cool, respectable guy. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, the guy investigating him uh, decides he's actually a good guy a good after guy all. Too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Catch Me If You Can is kind of similar where, I mean, it's not a drug race that's going on, but it's fraud. And at the end, he's a 
good guy for the government. Which, by the way, this should be uh, harrowing for our listeners and everyone that in this country, if you're a criminal mastermind, <laughs> at the end of the road, once you've paid your uh, time to society, the, the, the job you get is to work with our government to fleece everyone else now. Yeah, if you're going to be a criminal, uh, make sure you cultivate a skill set that's useful to the intelligence community. Yeah, right. Like, let's say uh, you're a pedophile and... Uh, just allegedly, right? Just, uh, yeah. Let's say you're allegedly a pedophile who allegedly ha- uh, hangs himself okay. in a prison where it's supposed to be impossible to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe uh, allegedly uh, market those skills to Mossad and the CIA. Right. The, the key is, if you are a pedophile, you should also take a community college vocational course <laughs> on hidden camera recording <laughs> because that is the difference between, like, 20 to life in a fucking prison where you're going to get shanked. <laughs> and... This is sort of like the learn to code for pedophiles. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Just as long That's as unemployed. you can <laughs> secretly record this shit. Um, but so... Uh, Faisal Haq, again, the Pakistani general who's controlling this province, um, the authors of the Outlaw Bank have a high-level U.S. intelligence source that they identify as Condor throughout the book, and he gives this quote that I'm just going just gonna to read to you here. Uh, quote, the arms supplies for the Afghan rebels were being smuggled through his district, uh, Faisal Haq, the general's district. But everybody knew that Hawk was also running the drug trade. BCCI was completely involved. We were working with the Pakistanis trying to slow it down, but we couldn't afford to expose it. Mm-hmm. And so this is what happens here, uh, you know, throughout the entire run of the Afghan war from like 79 to 88 or so when the Soviets finally withdraw. Which is another interesting thing to note is that the collapse of BCCI does not occur until after the Soviets have withdrawn from Afghanistan. There's, you know, reports going all the way back to 78 about how BCCI is a fraud, needs to be shut down. Uh, We mentioned on the last episode over 700 tips to federal law enforcement uh, Mm -hmm. throughout this time span saying, hey, BCCI is involved in a million illegal things. Right. But it's protected because they can't expose BCCI because then what they are doing arming the Mujahideen will be exposed. Right. We could trust Condor's candor. But it is something where uh, this... Man, the intelligence community is just full of fake friends. (laughs) (laughs) This this operation here has so many fucking consequences. In addition to, you know, creating Al-Qaeda... Uh, causing 9-11 eventually by setting up this network that's capable of carrying out these kinds of operations. In addition to that, uh, it makes the border regions of Pakistan, including Karachi, the city where um, uh, Abadi is based and where BCCI's Pakistan branch is primarily located, it makes the city extremely dangerous, and it also makes the border regions of Pakistan extremely dangerous because you've got billions of dollars flowing in as well as weapons, and Hawk is, of course, one of the main principles of the heroin trade. Because another thing that happens is, you know, there's the um, the Ayatollah Khomeini revolution in Iran. Iran starts cracking down, like, very harshly on heroin trafficking. Mm-hmm. So heroin trafficking primarily starts to go through Pakistan to the point where the outlaw bank says, uh, the book says 70% of the world's heroin started coming through Pakistan. Because How of the dare network. those terrorists encouraging Iranian leaders cut down on heroin trafficking but it is something where you know uh we we mentioned that quote there the u.s knew hawk and other pakistanis were involved in the heroin trade and making money from it but we needed him to send our weapons and our pallets full of money into afghanistan so we looked the other way uh so this creates a heroin epidemic in pakistan but it also creates one in the united states we needed hawk to help us solve the laura palmer murder and get us (laughs) the black lodge Well, gonna be black, Andy. Yeah, um, but you know, so that's just kind of the the main story there. And we mentioned on the previous episode, ISI, the Pakistani intelligence, is skimming off the top of these billions of dollars of weapons and um, uh, uh, just pallets full of hundred dollar bills that come into the country because the CIA's main role is dump the shit in Pakistan and then we give it to ISI or other couriers who bring it into Afghanistan. So of course they can do whatever they want with it. A lot of the weapons and money never even reaches its. Uh, supposed destination. And this is just entirely a predictable result of uh, the Reagan administration and the CIA under William Casey at the time uh, trying to skirt the uh, law of Congress and uh, public accountability. And in fact, I wanted to uh, play a drop from the NBC, um, NBC News report in 1992, which was 
I mean, the gist of it is that William Casey was the director of the CIA, and he was meeting directly with Aga Hassan Abadi, the founder of BCCI, this massive criminal enterprise, uh, for at least 1984 to 1986, usually like once a month. Really? Yeah. But what Bailey didn't know at the time was that the director of the CIA, William Casey, had his own secret BCCI agenda, using the corrupt bank for covert activity. Bailey now says that explains why others at the White House were in no hurry to go after BCCI. It's public knowledge now that the uh, Central Intelligence Agency used uh, the BCCI for certain of its payments. And uh, obviously doing that uh, would make them less than totally favorable to uh, blowing the uh, BCCI cover. What happened? The official line from the CIA, given in testimony before a Senate subcommittee last year by then-acting CIA Director Richard Kerr, was that the CIA did not make great use of BCCI. BCCI was not a major banking mechanism used by the agency for the support of covert foreign intelligence operations. It was used on an extremely limited basis for legal banking transactions. But an investigation by NBC News over the last five months including interviews with former BCCI insiders, prosecutors, and foreign intelligence sources, has found that there is much, much more to the relationship between BCCI and the CIA than anyone in government has been willing to admit. An important part of the CIA-BCCI intrigue involves what BCCI sources say were secret meetings here at the Madison Hotel in Washington in one of the $2,000-a-night presidential suites on the top floor of the hotel. According to BCCI sources, it was here that the head of the bank, Aga Hassan Abadi, met secretly for at least three years with CIA Director Casey. Sources say the secret meetings took place every few months, and the agenda involved... And the agenda involved uh, Pakistan, um, Afghanistan war primarily, as well as Iran-Contra. Um, but yes, thank God uh, all of the uh, news networks have cut their investigative journalism budgets. <laughs> well, so it was that all we, legal. Yes. It was minimal. Yes. Minimal banking transactions, and it was all legal. Yes, yeah. you heard the testimony. If it's minimal, it's legal. <laughs> but, you know, so the literal head of the CIA, William Casey, and, you know, he's a fascinating character where he comes in and doesn't even trust his own agency. He came after Helms, right? I believe so, yes. I think actually George H. No, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was George H. W. Bush, then Carter's guy, and then William Casey when Reagan comes in. Oh, okay. And then William Casey dies in '87, I believe. Wait, did uh, Bush come after Helms? No, Bush was before. Bush was the last Gerald Ford guy. Oh no, but I mean Helms was. Uh, he was like the '60s. He was like the guy who oh, did all okay, the like so MK Ultra shit. Okay, so my timeline's fucked up. But yeah, so then George H. W. Bush came after Helms, but um. I guess my point there was William Casey comes in with Reagan and Carter actually did lay off some CIA people, try to cut back because this was in the aftermath of the um, the church committee, of course, you know, where right. they got exposed for all of this bullshit, including MKUltra. Um, but so uh, Casey comes in. But he didn't try to, let's say, shatter the CIA into a million different pieces. <laughs> yes, no. The, uh, and then go on uh, an open roof car ride through. Uh, That's the thing is like, I don't. I, I, I'm. I'm with Matt Chrisman. I'm agnostic on was JFK killed by the CIA. Oh yeah, but it's fun to speculate. But you just can't help but notice that the last president to threaten to shut down the CIA just <laughs> happened to be assassinated, and no president since then has tried to do that. Yeah, the thing that like I used to be worried that you know Bernie would completely lose and fall into irrelevance, and that's still a possibility. But now that things are looking good for him now, I'm just really afraid of a coup. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, he's old enough that if, like, he dies of whatever, heart attack, you know, it's just the usual people will all be lecturing you. Commit suicide by jumping out of a window. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> With a blow to his head yeah. on LSD. <laughs> Jumped <Yeah>. or fell. <laughs> <laughs> or fell, yeah. Immediately. But yeah, he's old enough that all the usual people will be like, you fucking conspiracy theorist. He was an old man. <laughs> yeah. he, you know, they die of uh, natural causes they all would, the time right after they win the New Hampshire oh, primary. They would, <laughs> they would bring out the heart attack gun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so what I wanted to talk about here, and so, you know, William Casey, he wants to get around the agency. Mo more than anything else, he wants to get around congressional oversight. Uh, 
uh, because so he sets up. Wait, so he doesn't trust the CIA, and also he wants to get around public oversight of the CIA. <laughs> yes, I mean, like he has people within there that he trusts, but he's he doesn't like that the bureaucracy in the aftermath of the Church Committee. A lot of people there were like, okay, let's go along with the Senate because the Church Committee did oh, clip their exactly. wings a little bit. Right. Where you know, again, the Senate uh, investigates, the Senate passes a law saying no more CIA assassinations. Aww. You know, uh, and so. Uh, William Casey doesn't like that there are a lot of people within the bureaucracy who are like, okay, we have, let's follow the law. I don't want to get in trouble. Right. So he's actually, William Casey is a former OSS agent, and he brings in this his own network called the, quote, Hardy Boys, which are like a bunch of old geezers he knows from the OSS. Like <laughs> the Outlaw Bank, the book, has like really funny descriptions of him like just giving these old people secret CIA <laughs> technology and weapons and shit and just letting them walk out the door and like do <laughs> operations. Just completely off the books, no just oversight. Sure. A lot of uh, institutional knowledge on how to sabotage a zero. <laughs> the Outlaw Bank actually like quotes from the memoir of the leader of the French intelligence agency um, who apparently wrote this story in his memoir about meeting Ronald Reagan I believe either shortly after or shortly before he won the election and telling Reagan don't trust the CIA you know there's like a lot of amateurs or fools over there and so uh, he's I'm sure he retained that yeah Uh, he uh, this guy this leader of the French intelligence becomes a guy who like William Casey and um, Ronald Reagan rely on to the point where he pitches them on in the Afghan war uh, you guys should use drugs that you have seized off the streets of America and then dump them into Kabul to get the Soviet troops addicted to drugs. And they're like really <laughs> excited about this operation, but then it doesn't go forward. But it's foolish anyways, because there's so much heroin in Afghanistan already. Yeah, right. It would happen. But it's just one of those things like they give the the outlaw bank gives this description of William Casey hearing the idea and getting so pumped up and like getting up off his, <laughs> his desk and like pacing around all excited, you know. So it was something where Ronald Reagan and William Casey were really interested in these operations to uh, defeat the Soviet Union by any means necessary. Because another thing the book alleges, I think very credibly, is that um, with Jimmy Carter, and we'll, we'll go through this in a second here, there was some pretty substantial bribery to uh, associates of Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter himself, uh, at least in the form of charitable donations to his foundation. But um, but with Ronald Reagan, there was less of that overtly, though there was still, but it was more just the people there believed so firmly that any means necessary to defeat the Soviet Union that BCCI could just say, yeah, we're doing what the U.S. Congress won't let you do mm. to stop the Soviet Union. Yeah, The CIA... Uh, kind of responds like in that in that committee hearing their response like they try to downplay the significance of like well we didn't even really need access to BCCI it was just a few minor like they're like they're really downplaying what was like basically their only link into the formal international banking system because otherwise what are you going to do you're going to have to go the pallets of money route Hmm. <laughs> in order to finance all of these weapons and training. It's also and it's just like it's like infinitely more uh places that a clandestine operation could fail if you don't have access to just the regular banking system. Right, right. It's also kind of funny. I forget if it's Richard Kerr or William Casey. I think it's Richard Kerr actually. Uh the CIA director um is originally the CIA is saying we never had any accounts with BCCI. And then it comes out, and um, he what he does is he gives a press conference to middle schoolers hmm. so that nobody will a- ask him hostile questions. <laughs> and then he admits, yes, we had some limited accounts with BCCI, but it was all above board. <laughs> and that's kind of the extent of what the CIA admitted. And in fact, we have a drop from a person from the Kerry Committee, because the Kerry Committee is kind of what starts to blow this open, because John... My Ke- wife... <laughs> John Kerry has actually some good investigators on his his subcommittee, but there's there's one drop of them getting the runaround from the CIA, which just kind of shows you how uh, impossible congressional oversight of the CIA is. CIA takeover of for bank. We went down to Langley. We asked for a briefing by the CIA on everything it knew about BCCI again at the top secret level. They provided a briefer to us, who was unfamiliar with the name. Kamal Ad Ha. Uh, it was absolutely obvious to us we weren't getting the full story. Right, this is what the agency said. So Kamal Adham, again, we talked about this in the last episode, 
head of Saudi intelligence from 1965 to 1979. So they, the CIA provided Kerry's committee with a briefer who had no idea who the head of Saudi intelligence was. And again, this in the present, there's really, except for the... Uh, the torture investigation there's been no oversight of the cia right. but I don't like, you know i don't like what i read about it <laughs> it just shows you how what a joke congressional oversight of this agency has become to the point where look i do think the cia has at minimum tertiary links to child trafficking and probably more explicit in the case of jeffrey epstein but, you know, if you say that shit, people are just like, oh, it's a conspiracy. But the thing is, how could we fucking know? There is no oversight here. This is an agency that has become a government unto itself. And uh, you just listen to a, a staffer for John Kerry say that when they tried to find shit out, they just sent them a fake briefer and just constantly deceived and minimized them. And, and uh, again, they did the same thing with all the torture investigations. And there's no consequences. No CIA people go to jail. And even the Iran-Contra prosecutions were all pardoned on the way out. Sean, it sounds to me like you're uh, talking about a shadow government. And I don't know if you know this, but that is actually an anti-Semitic trope. <laughs> yeah, and Sean, that's also black. So I don't know why you keep blaming the blacks on this. Mm -hmm. What, uh, shadow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm <laughs> oh, saying yeah. shadows are black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I guess what I wanted to do here is just read a little bit from um, the Outlaw Bank and this former member of the Black Network. Uh, Again with the Blacks, Sean. He, he gives this, um, uh, this statement to uh, the, the journalist who wrote the Outlaw Bank, and he goes through a few different things. And I just wanted to start with uh, Mossad. They ask him uh, to tell them what he knows about the Mossad and the BCCI Black Network. Again, this is the intelligence arm of BCCI with about 1,500 members, according to the book. Uh, he says about Mossad, What do you want to know? We trained together in Karachi for covert operations. We gathered information for the Mossad, spying on the Gulf states because we were so close to the ruling families there that we were familiar with foreign policies. The Israelis sold U.S. arms technology expertise to Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, and BCCI brokered the deals. BCCI would loan money to the countries for the purchases, but some of it that came to Pakistan was a gift. And uh, they talk about that. They talk about, uh, he gives this quote to, uh, uh, the CIA was doing things for us and we were doing things for the agency. We picked people up for them. We assassinated people for the agency. We were big in drugs, drug smuggling, drug financing. Um, another kind of fascinating thing he talks about, uh, he says, BCCI's motives was to strengthen its ties to the agencies, all the various intelligence agencies. We were looking to the future, but it wasn't all tied to arms. Once there was a shipment from Colombia via Fiji and Manila to Karachi by ship. The network unloaded it in Karachi. A CIA agent from Indiana named Steve was in charge, and we had to get it out of the port using trucks to the airport where we loaded it onto an unmarked 707. I was there. I carried the money to give to Karachi Customs. The payoff to the Customs was half a million rupees, which is about 25,000 U.S. dollars. I knew that supervisor. He asked to take the night ship that night because something was coming in. I don't know what the shipment was. It was huge. Wooden crates. We had to use a crane instead of the forklift. Hmm. Um, and they ask him if he knows what was in the shipments. Um, I like that there's an unmarked 707. Like they bought a 707 and then filed off the serial number. <laughs> uh, so he says he doesn't know what was in the shipment. Uh, this was around uh, April 1989. Right off Craigslist. Yeah. So April eight, uh, 1989, he doesn't know what's in the shipment. He says, the plane left Karachi going over Turkey and Iran, and they got Air Pakistan to abort a scheduled flight at the last minute, so this plane would appear to be Air Pakistan. But then it diverted to Czechoslovakia. I heard its final destination was the east coast of the United States, somewhere between Virginia and Vermont. They ask him again, uh, what do you think was in the crates? I don't know. We moved gold, we moved guns, we moved drugs. This shipment started in Colombia. So you can speculate as to what would be in this shipment that ended up somewhere on the east coast of the United States with a CIA guy named Steve overseeing it, but it is very possibly uh, cocaine trafficking from Colombia with the uh, oversight of the CIA to get money for their black ops. Or gold or guns, who the fuck knows? Sure. Anything when you think about it, literally, including butt, especially butt, really, when you yeah. think about it. Yeah. 
Steve's like silently hoping we don't figure <laughs> out it was him. He had the he had the fucking Pakistan black mm-hmm. mission, and then his uh, next job was to infiltrate leftist podcasts. <laughs> so he's like, "Yeah, we we have to use a pseudonym so that my job doesn't find out I work here." I, I peel off the skin under my nose, and there's a mustache underneath it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And so this this former agent of BCCI tells a bunch of different horrifying stories. He mainly says in within Pakistan, BCCI would mainly do intimidation. Again, they were so connected to the ISI, Pakistani military, that if they just threatened you, you would fall in line for the most part. But he does tell a story about a BCCI man they discovered uh, who was liquidating his assets and fleeing the country. And he gives a quote, uh, they got brigands from the Northwest. They came in and raped his wife and killed his brother along with him. Uh, and he said that was the uh, only assassination within Pakistan he knew about. But he did hear rumors of CIA assassinations. And he says, quote, we helped them in Southeast Asia, Burma and Hong Kong. So they helped the CIA assassinations. Yes. They're saying they BCCI had agents there who would do assassination for the CIA. Because, again, there is officially a Senate ban on CIA assassination, which is impossible to find a workaround. <laughs> right. After BCCI goes under, they're trying to get jobs at other banks. Mm-hmm. It's like, so um, uh, what what qualifies you to work at Bank of America? What banking experience do you have? Well, uh, I, uh, I've done a lot of assassinations. Oh, okay. Yeah, we can use that. <laughs> I'm a procurer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one, one last quote from this uh, uh, black uh, network guy uh, from BCCI. Always a black guy with you, Sean. Why has it got to be black? Uh, he says, quote, there were lots of Americans on the payroll. These were the people we had gotten to through blackmail, extortion, bribery. There were judges, state policemen, the FBI, the Justice Department. In the U.S., it was always money. You give a guy a loan and he didn't have to pay it back. And they talk about part of his job for BCCI, uh, as well as, you know, intelligence gathering and these kinds of things, was he would put, say, 100000 or whatever the amount is, just put it in somebody's bank account. So you don't even offer them a bribe. You just put 100000 in their bank account, and then they're left with a dilemma. Oh, do I return this money, or do I just keep my mouth shut? Right, and right. then you own them right away. And, you know, again, we mentioned this on the last episode. He is the one who claims that Senator John Tower, who wrote the uh, Tower Commission report on Iran-Contra, uh, they blackmailed him with uh, probably underage girls from Lahore and got videos and film. So, again, no... <clears throat> No possible overlinks <laughs> with the Epstein scandal. No, uh, none at all. And BCCI, that, Sean. BCCI training with the Mossad and uh, unloading drugs <laughs> over the overs- uh, under the oversight of CIA agents and shit. We can talk a bit here about another depressing topic, which is BCCI's role in trafficking. We've kind of hinted at this a lot. Their lending practices. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You will never believe the fucking leverage ratio these people were getting. <laughs> Can you up believe to. these people were using BCCI shares by the, from their major shareholders <laughs> as collateral? Oh, I can believe that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we just like get so disgusted we can't do a comedy <laughs> podcast anymore. Um, but so you know, look, uh, Sheikh Zayed. Um, and also his son, who now, uh, Sheikh Zayed has since died. His son now runs the United Arab Emirates. His son, I believe Khalid, um, has a reputation as a playboy. Uh, you know, they talk about how he would like party in London and shit. And again, this, this DJ guy, Khalid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Khalifa. Prince Khalifa, now the uh, leader of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he had a reputation as a playboy. Um, Wiz and, Khalifa. Yes. And... <laughs> Again, the BCCI says you. Uh, there's no way to discuss commercial matters with uh, these kind of um, people in the royal courts. You just talk to them about camels or you bring them girls. He also talks about bringing cocaine or young boys to various people in the um, in the uh, royal families. But what's kind of disturbing here is there is something within BCCI called the quote-unquote protocol department. And uh, according to the book... And th- their job is... Why are you laughing, Stephen? <laughs> they developed a lot of protocols Yeah, there's a book the with years. protocols. What's so funny about that? Yeah, Stephen, I don't it's, know what you're getting at here. So tell us about this book the elders wrote. Um, it's really disturbing the financial protocols the protocol department came up with. 
And that's what's really disgusting if about this If you follow protocol, you don't have anything to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the quote-unquote protocol department, their job is essentially entertaining VIPs for BCCI. And according to the book, The Outlaw Bank, when BCCI opened in Karachi in 1978, this is after the coup and they're allowed back in Pakistan again, when they opened in Karachi in 1978, the protocol department was already in place with a 1.5 million US dollar budget and over 100 employees. It would grow to about 500 employees. Oh, what year was this? 1978. Oh, that's the year Kumail Nanjiani was born in Karachi. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the dancing boy, Camille Nalgiani. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what they would do is, um, again, it's very disturbing here, but what they would do is they would uh, go to what are called the uh, quote-unquote diamond markets. It's uh, like his, his honest, like how I became a comedian. Well, I, I discovered as a dancing boy, I could Did you try really to do a Camille accent and then it just dropped immediately? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah so they would go to the diamond markets and just quoting from the book uh, the entertainment provided yeah, by yeah I want to fuck that one just do the heroin <laughs> quoting from the book they would go to the diamond markets and uh, the entertainment provided by BCCI uh, quoting from the book it had always meant such things as bustard hunts those are the uh, the hen like <laughs> the turkey like animals that you hunt with the falcons <laughs> Uh, and camel races, but now the entourages of Middle Eastern uh, leaders, in particular that of Zaid of the U United Arab Emirates, were increasingly being entertained in less wholesome ways. Much of this sort of amusement took place in Lahore's legendary diamond market, home of the famous quote-unquote dancing girls. There, girls as young as 12, and later even younger, were dressed in silk harem pants and procured by BCCI officers for their clients. In the middle 1970s, the man in charge of inspecting the girl was Zafar Iqbal, who would later become the CEO of BCCI. Mm. Um, inspecting? Yes. <laughs> yeah, because okay. they, they go to these markets and they inspect the girls. And the, the way it's described later on is they have later the, the wife of some doctor who's connected to BCCI uh, checking out the girls uh, throughout. <laughs> yeah, they, they describe... all right. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think uh, maintenance <laughs> on this is good. Uh, Strong seven. Why is she? Why is she the wife of a doctor? Doesn't she have her own thing going? Yes, <laughs> she's like Ben Shapiro. She just can't shut the fuck up about how her husband is a doctor. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, so, quoting from the book again, uh, Bigam Asghari Rahim, the wife of a Pakistani doctor, was in charge of rounding up the girls and bringing them to Karachi to be outfitted in proper clothes before being presented to the princely clients. Often, she would shepherd more than 50 girls at a time through a department store, shopping for jewelry and dresses. The practice was so successful, far more effective than giving away microwave ovens or toasters, that the bank would spend as much as 100000 U.S. dollars on such an evening's entertainment. According to Senate testimony, um, uh, she would also, quote, interview girls and women and take them to Abu Dhabi for a dancing show or arrange some singing shows throughout the Middle East. Quote, dancing girls and singing girls are euphemisms for prostitutes. Um, and we have mentioned the Kerry Committee took testimony about how women uh, who are prepubescent were physically harmed by uh, being raped by uh, members of the Saudi, the UAE royal family. Among yeah. others. But uh, one last thing on this that is particularly disturbing to me. Jimmy Carter. So uh, Cy Vance, you might know Cy Vance Jr. as the uh, ineffectual Manhattan district attorney who gave a pass to the Trump kids as well as to Harvey Weinstein, which, um, you know, uh, uh, Morgenthau, the uh, district attorney that preceded him was by no means perfect, but he is the guy who uh, investigated BCCI and brought this whole thing down. So it is quite the uh, drop in quality, one of the uh, most kind of Godfather 2 to Godfather 3 <laughs> uh, political transitions in history to go from uh, Robert Morgenthau to uh, Cy Vance Jr. But Cy Vance's father, Cy Vance, was the Secretary of State for Jimmy Carter. Oh, and really? before that, he uh, he got his first big government gig, uh, according to Seymour Hersh, just lying to the Pentagon press corps about Vietnam. Like, as as Hersh told it in his memoir, uh, Robert McNamara and Cy Vance would just kind of walk into the room, tell the press corps a bunch of easily uh, checked lies, and then uh, the press corps would just kind of happily write it down. 
Wow. It's yeah. so fucked up that Trump is the first president to lie to the press <laughs> just constantly. Yeah, he should listen to the uh, the honest generals. So Cy Vance was uh, uh, Jimmy Carter's secretary of state. And according to the book, The Outlaw Bank, uh, before Jimmy Carter visited Pakistan, Cy Vance secretly visited Pakistan. And kind of a disturbing thing is that both Jimmy Carter and Cy Vance on their official trips to Pakistan according to the book, quote, had been hosted by BCCI's protocol department rather than Pakistani officials. Hmm. I would assume, or at least I would hope, the entertainment was slightly different from what the protocol department was offering to the United Arab Emirates. (laughs) I'll tell you what, we didn't have girls like this on the peanut farm. (laughs) Well, uh, that's the other thing, which we'll actually get to right here. But, you know, it kind of goes to show you where... Carter leaves office, and then BCCI gives him at least $10 million for his charitable foundation. Carter's budget director, his former budget director, um, was a guy named uh, uh, Bertram Lance. He had to resign as Carter's budget director. He got in financial problems. He was, I believe, the half-owner of the National Bank of Georgia. Hmm. Um, BCCI buys it from him using front people at a premium to kind of essentially get him in pocket where you're in desperate financial straits, we'll buy your bank, which not only gives BCCI a foothold in the American market, but also gives him money and makes him, you know, their patsy now. Right, right. But in addition to that, uh, according to the book, The Outlaw Bank, the National Bank of Georgia was the largest lender to Jimmy Carter's peanut farm. (laughs) So BCCI was also the largest lender to Jimmy Carter's peanut farm. And uh, they love nuts. Yes. I didn't know he still had a peanut farm when he was president. Yeah, he, like, didn't he have to, like... He, he was forced to give it up because it would be conflicting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, he did have to give it up, but I think he got it back after his presidency. Oh, so then they lent it to his blind, peanut farm when he went back. Trust. Yeah. Blind peanut pro- trust. <laughs> you know what Trump so was supposed to do, but instead chose to <laughs> uh, circumvent and do a couple of loopholes around that shit. Yeah, okay, Sean, but how does this tie to Russia? Yeah, come on, Sean. But so, yes, they uh, they buy in 1977. Uh, Bertram Lance meets uh, uh, representatives from BCCI. They um, give him a three point four million dollar loan and they buy the National Bank of Georgia from him. Uh, and of course, uh, in addition to that, in 1982, after Carter leaves office, he starts meeting uh, Abadi, the founder of BCCI. He starts meeting him in person, flying around the world with him. And we played on the first uh, part of this, the quote about Jimmy Carter saying, you know, Abadi is a decent man and BCCI is a unique bank among all of the ones. I have never seen a protocol department this efficient and uh, with uh, this many employees. But so... It, Wonderful dancing. Yes. <laughs> and so I guess we'll kind of uh, close... I guess they did have dancers like that on the peanut farm later. Yes. I guess we'll kind of stop this here because, you know, we've, we've gone through the Afghan war, we've gone through trafficking, we've gone through a fair bit of CIA links, links to Jimmy Carter. Um, what I want to talk about on the next and last part will be, we'll go through the fall of BCCI and then we'll go through some of Whitney Webb's and uh, others' allegations about what has happened with regards to Jeffrey Epstein, possible BCCI links. And also just we should mention here that according to the book, The Outlaw Bank, at least 16 people were died in suspicious circumstances during the BCCI investigation. Really? They do lay out very clearly uh, two journalists who were um, very clearly, in my mind, murdered. Uh, I mean, journalists just die. It's part of the job. Yeah. I, w- I like how it's the, the term you're using is mysterious. Like, it turns out <laughs> that next to his hotel room was a vat of quicksand no one saw coming. <laughs> is this higher rate than the baseline mysterious death <laughs> for, for journalists? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what's the what's the vig on this death on journalism? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's kind of mysterious when a journalist gets shot to death with a silenced pistol and then his notes disappear out of his <laughs> hotel. Uh, yeah, so there's a Financial Times journalist named Anson Ning uh, who is killed in Guatemala over BCCI. Uh, he was investigating BCCI in Guatemala for the Financial Times. Uh, you might be aware there was a genocide in Guatemala, but BCCI's standard uh, modus operandi was to help elites in various countries funnel money out 
Uh, so, you know, whatever aid or uh, IMF loans or whatever the fuck it might be, they just help the ruling government uh, uh, squirrel a whole bunch of it out into Cayman Islands accounts. So you can see why if he's in Guatemala, uh, somebody might want investigating this for the Financial Times, somebody might want to shoot him. And he's murdered in his apartment uh, with a silenced pistol. His notes are taken and uh, a, a towel is wrapped around his head. To apparently prevent the wow, blood racist. from uh, to prevent the blood, yeah. it was not that kind of message. It was, I guess, to prevent the blood from leaking out. That just That's sounds like a standard. Sounds like a standard mugging, you know. When you've got a lot of notes, you just become a target for uh, muggers. The street value of Financial Times notes is <laughs> like fifteen million dollars. Oh, man, I saw this guy. He bought like three notebooks the other this day. Man. Let's roll up on him, man. He's got like four moleskins <laughs> in his pocket right now. If you're you're walking through Jamaica, Queens, people will just be like, fire notes. <laughs> <laughs> Financial Times. Financial Times business notes. Empty notes, yeah. Empty notes. Guy, I saw this guy open up his Financial Times subscription with a fingerprint. Oh, shit, man. Excuse me, I got all these uh, Financial Times notes that I just need to unload. I just got too many, if you could. Yo, man, you can't say that on the street, Doc. Someone's going to rob us. <laughs> Uh, and then the other reporter is Danny Casalaro, who um, you might be, he's kind of an obsession of various um, conspiracy bloggers. And I think the suspicious, the circumstances of his death are extremely suspicious. He was an independent journalist. He's found dead in his West Virginia hotel room in 1991. Uh, just so happens one of his last entries, the last entry in his notebook is to call one of the authors of the book, The Outlaw Bank. Oh, wow. So uh, he was investigating what he called, quote unquote, the octopus, which he said involved BCCI, involved Iran-Contra, and also involved this Promise software, huh. w- which we don't have time to get too much into. Maybe we'll talk a little more on the next episode, but it's this really weird story about this guy who wrote software for the Department of Justice and later got into a long legal battle where he says they and possibly Israeli intelligence sold his software and then the conspiracy or the allegation is that they put a back door in it and started selling it around the world so that they could uh, steal information out of this. But so... So uh, They put a butt on it and started doing butt stuff with the rest of the world. Clearly he got assassinated by the second-rate squad because his notes were still in the... (laughs) Yeah, right, seriously. (laughs) They, they killed him, but they didn't grab his notes. Yeah. Uh, uh, so The shit that we really need. So we'll maybe talk a little bit more about Danny Casalaro on the next and last part of this, but you should just know that um, you can look at the photos of his wrist wounds online. He was found dead in a bathtub, supposedly ruled a suicide, slashed his own wrists. Uh, his family said that he spent his entire life with a like really... Uh, vicious fear of blood mm-hmm. and bleeding. So they'd say, you know, if he did that, he wasn't going to do it that way. Right, right. Uh, you can look on the photos. Um, uh, they're disturbing, but he's got really deep cuts all over his wrists. Ugh. Like to the point where, like, if you're just going to open up your veins and die in, in, in the bathtub, it really shouldn't look like that. It's like really fucking deep. Mm. Um, and he also talked about... Also his, down the road, or also across the street, not down the road. Yes, he talked about this, uh, um, or his housekeeper, among others, have talked about how he was getting threatening phone calls. He told his brother, if something happens to me, it was not a suicide, you know. Oh, well. Like his That's house- what everyone says before they kill themselves. <laughs> <laughs> like somebody... But the notes, Sean, yes. do you leave any notes? His people have looked at some of the... Like, some of his notes were taken, but some of them were still there. Mm, have to... Uh, they wrote, like, some weird, uh, nonsensical suicide note on the hotel uh, paper. And um, and I guess just, uh, well, one quote from the book. His housekeeper testified that um, she, like, picked up the phone at his, at his house. The nonsensical hotel notes are like, although my fear of blood persisted throughout my life, <laughs> at these final moments, I'm coming to terms with my fears. I can just imagine, like, the news reports are like, the suicide note says... Uh, I cannot enjoy writing music anymore. And then the assassin's at home. He's like, shit, I have the Cobain note. <laughs> this is, it sounds like amateur hour. Right, yeah. right. And it's on, you said it was on the hotel stationery. Yeah, it's yeah. not even. It's just like the Marriott. It's not even good stock. <laughs> the logo behind it. What's your note on like some good papyrus? Well, at least they put them in the bathtub so it wasn't a big mess. So like just a couple more things from this. Uh, the housekeeper says she like picked up the phone at his house and she got multiple death threats, one of which was, we're going to cut you up and throw your body to the sharks. And then the person on the other line hung up. 
she you would also get the silent uh, phone calls. Um, there have been uh, multiple Freedom of Information Act requests related to his investigation, one of which was finally uh, declassified in 2017, though the FBI's claimed they lost a lot of pages related to this. Mm. But what was declassified, the, the FBI agents investigating this, more than half of them said they suspected this was not a suicide, but felt pressure from above to uh, close out this investigation. Mm. And then if I can just uh, quote from the Outlaw Bank to uh, uh, close out this part of the story, uh, he had supposedly killed himself by slashing his wrists, except that the cuts had been phenomenally deep all the way through the tendons. There was also evidence that someone else had been in the room with him. Quote, it looked like someone tried to wipe up the blood on the floor and slid the towels under the sink, one of the motel's housekeepers said in a magazine interview. It looked like someone threw the towels on the floor and tried to wipe the blood with their foot, but they didn't get the blood. They just smeared it on the floor. Yeah, they are pretty deep. I mean, I saw the pictures and they're pretty deep on like both wrists. And if it's going to the tendon, I don't think you would have the strength in your hand to hold a knife and do the other wrist. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Those are very deep cuts. Yeah. Yeah. You can believe or disbelieve this, but uh, Whitney Webb in Mint, R- Mint Press, she writes about in 1994, um, one of uh, uh, Danny lawyers, uh or no, an Insla lawyer that's related to the uh, Promise Software lawsuit, uh, this lawyer, Charles Work, told then-Assistant Attorney General John Dewey that one of Insla's confidential sources in the government had stated that Casalaro had been injected with a substance that deadened his nerves from the neck down, explaining the apparent lack of struggle and that the substance used had come from the U.S. Army inventory. The last person who had arranged Casalaro's final meeting oh, cool before that the army has that. <laughs> the last person who had arranged Casalaro's final meeting before his death was a U.S. military intelligence officer named Joseph Kuehler, C-U-E-L-L-A-R. Kuehler. Yes. <laughs> um. So I guess we'll close out the story on the next episode, but I do want to just make clear to anyone listening who might not be uh let's say sympathetic to our interests we don't do any invi- original reporting no. on this podcast no, no, no. so we just take what other journalists say and then we play annoying right. sound effects over it well that's the grub sticker way yes and i mean you know if you want new dirt yes you gotta you gotta pay more than five ten fifteen dollars you gotta directly paypal us Minimum seventy to ninety thousand dollars. That's how you're going to get the goods. Yes. So if you're listening to this and you have the documents confirming that uh, Casalaro was injected with a nerve agent, just send them to the Guardian because <laughs> we are not trying to get injected with a nerve agent and then have our wrist cut in a bathtub and be unable to resist. Um. And at this time of recording, none of us are currently suicidal. Yes. Uh. Nah. Okay. But you know. <laughs> Whenever we finish the recording, we like to take LSD and hit ourselves in the head <laughs> just to celebrate another job yeah. well done. Yeah. So right. if that's what happens to us, I mean, it was natural cause. Sure, hit exactly. ourselves in the head about a week or two later <laughs> <laughs> while on a, a week-long retreat with the government trying to, quote, diagnose our condition. All right. Uh, so we will uh, come back with part three uh, on the Patreon side. We will close out the story of BCCI and we'll talk a little bit about some of the other possible conspiracies, including the Finders Cult and the Franklin Credits scandal. And with that, this has been Yogi Paywall. <laughs> All right. Sean P. McCarthy, thanks for listening. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. To quote Montesquieu, power without knowledge is power lost. <laughs>